Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Tabiso Lohoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Nigerian doctors suspect, suspend a second strike to allow government time to meet demands. Former South Africa's President Thabo Mbeki pays tribute to George Bezos. 80% of all child cancer cases occur in low- and middle-income countries. And in economics news, Kenya could in the coming days be hit by a major diesel shortage. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. The number of coronavirus cases across the globe has surpassed 28 million since the start of the outbreak. Over 908,000 people have died worldwide from COVID-19 related illnesses. The U.S. remains the country with the most cases, having recorded over 6.3 million infections and 191,000 COVID-19 related deaths. India has recorded over 90,000 new cases in the past 24 hours, taking its total above that of Brazil. The country now has the second largest number of confirmed cases in the world of over 4.2 million. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has been announced as the co-chair of the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator Facilitation Council with Norway's Prime Minister. The council will advise on the work to achieve the rapid development and distribution of COVID-19 vaccines. The inaugural meeting of the council, which includes health ministers from member states, took place on Thursday. 3.5 billion US dollars has been contributed to ACT so far out of the $31 billion needed. Ramaphosa says the process of finding the tools to combat the pandemic needs to be fast-tracked. It is essential that humanity should have a sense that if and when a vaccine is developed, all countries should benefit and not be left behind. Humanity requires that the vaccine should be regarded as a public good to benefit all. We cannot achieve universal health coverage when the COVID-19 vaccine is available only to countries that are well-resourced in terms of research, manufacturing, distribution and service. Former South African President Tabumbeki says the ruling ANC needs to embody the values George Bezos lived by in order to get the party back on track. Paying tribute to the struggle, veteran Mbeki says Bezos committed his entire life to serving the people. The celebrated 92-year-old human rights activist died on Wednesday at his home in Johannesburg. Mbeki says the best way to honor Bezos would be to rid the organization of corruption. The ANC itself, in the eyes of many of our people, is seen as the, exa- the very exemplar of corruption. And when you have a governing party which is like that, then it means the country is in crisis. 
Therefore, I think what is necessary for some of us is to take up that call for the renewal of the ANC. To say when the ANC says it is renewing itself, its membership must be of the kind that George Bezos was. That only when the ANC becomes like that again, it's only then that it will be able to discharge its responsibilities to the people of South Africa. Egypt will hold parliamentary elections on the 24th to the 25th of October. The Elections Commissioner Lashin Ibrahim made the announcement at a televised press conference. Egypt last held elections for the House of Representatives in 2015. The chambers dominated by supporters of President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, who took power in 2013 after the army removed Islamist President Mohamed Morsi following mass protests against his rule. In 2018, Sisi was re-elected with 97% of votes the same proportion that the former military commander secured four years ago for his first term, but with a lower turnout. Microsoft says hackers with ties to Russia, China and Iran are attempting to spy on people and groups involved with the U.S. 2020 presidential election. The tech giant says Russian hackers who breached the 2016 Democratic campaign are again involved with both President Donald Trump and Democrat Joe Biden's campaigns being in the cyber raiders' sites. Russian hackers from the Strotium Group or Fancy Bear Group have targeted over 200 organizations, many of which are linked to U.S. political parties, Biden is leading opinion polls in the run-up to the November presidential elections. And in sports news, Serena Williams was beaten 1-6-6-3-6-3 in the semifinals of the U.S. Open by Victoria Azarenka, denying her the chance of winning a record equaling 24 Grand Slam single titles on home soil this year. Belarusian Azarenka will play Japan's Naomi Osaka in her third final at Flushing Meadows on Saturday, having lost the previous two to Williams in 2012 and 2013. Six-time U.S. Open champion Williams came out of firing winners from all sides of the Arthur Ashe Stadium court and wrapped up the opening set in little more than half an hour. Azarenka, playing her first Grand Slam semifinal in seven years, raised her game in the second stanza and came out on top after some explosive exchanges of power hitting. The twice Australian Open champion kept up the pressure in the third as 38-year-old Williams struggled with an injury to her left ankle and sealed a place in the final with an ace. Fourth seed Naomi Osaka defeated 28th seed Jennifer Brady in a high-quality three-setter, crediting her run to a carefree attitude post-lockdown. That's the news headline at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Anne. Party primaries for Uganda's ruling national resistance movement have ended ahead of presidential and parliamentary elections in January next year. However, the primaries ended in violence that resulted in the death of at least six people, with dozens of others sustaining serious injuries in western Uganda. James Shimangula reports. The violence that occurred in western Uganda at the end of party primaries for the country's ruling national resistance movement has angered President Yoweri Museveni, who blames police for failing to stop it. Speaking in the Ugandan capital Kampala, Museveni said although the violence was orchestrated by politicians, police personnel are to be held accountable for failing to contain it. 
A Ugandan leader wondered why police would shoot at unarmed people who are fighting among themselves. Museveni said Uganda's State Minister of Labor and Economic Development, Mwesigwa Rukutana, was captured on camera attempting to shoot people after he lost the primaries and will be charged with threatening violence and attempted murder. Museveni asked politicians that were not satisfied with the results of the primaries to prepare petitions and present them to a panel of elders, which he said will shortly be constituted to hear primaries election petitions. Museveni described the violence that occurred in western Uganda as a dirty game. This game is finished. I appeal to Ugandans to be calm. We shall act. Anybody who thinks he can uh, somehow manipulate it is wasting his time. He will end up in prison instead of parliament. Chairman of Uganda's ruling National Resistance Movement's Electoral Commission, Tanga Odoi, accused some members of the party of acting with impunity during the violence. If people go overboard, they are not above the law. This country will be contained when we contain NRM. The NRM supporters should not be above the law. They should be dealt with hard like they deal with opposition. A minister in President Museveni's office, Rosemary Seninde, says the violence that happened in western Uganda is apparently an indication that next year's presidential and parliamentary elections may be gripped by violence. When we do the fighting, and yet we are the ones in government, I think we send a bad message to the rest of the parties who probably would be looking upon us to see how we are managing and maneuvering through this kind of election. That was Rosemary Seninde, a minister of state in Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni's office. Uganda is expected to hold the presidential and the parliamentary elections in January next year. Museveni, who has ruled Uganda for more than 30 years, will contest the presidency. His main presidential challenger is prominent musician and politician Bobby Wine. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Cabinet has decided to place the entire country on alert level 2, with effect from midnight on Monday, the 17th of August 2020. Alert level 2, in terms of our risk-adjusted strategy in dealing with the pandemic, means that there is moderate COVID-19 spread of the virus, with a relatively high health system readiness. The move to level two means that we can remove nearly all of the restrictions on the resumption of economic activity across most industries. Channel Africa. It's 7.11 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa.
Nigerian doctors have begun their second strike of the year over pay and working conditions amid the spread of the coronavirus. Dr. Aliyu Sokomba, president of the National Association of Resident Doctors, says around 16,000 doctors have downed tools. Nigeria has a total of 55,160 confirmed coronavirus infections and 1,061 deaths. Minister of Labor Chris Ngike has called on the doctors to suspend the strike. He will meet with the union management to discuss an amicable solution. Peter Ndoro spoke to Samson Omale, a journalist in Nigeria. This is the second strike that doctors have embarked upon. How difficult was the first one as an indicator of what might play out now? Okay, um, the first one was quite difficult because they got into some arrangements and some meetings where there was this uh, memorandum of understanding reached between the federal government of Nigeria and the National Association of Nigerian Doctors. Almost three, four months down the line, those agreements seem not to have gotten anywhere. And the doctors are getting back and saying, hey, look, uh, we agreed that you're going to implement one, two, three, four. Um, items on our negotiation papers, but unfortunately you're not doing so, so we're going back on strike. You know, in this meeting that spanned the whole of today, and they're just coming out, and Dr. Aliyu Sokumba is announcing that um, they seem to have reached some amicable arrangement, um, an agreement rather, with the Nigerian government and with the Minister of uh, um, Labor, Dr. Chris Ingige, and they're saying that they are suspending the strike pending when they meet with their executive tomorrow to take a national decision with all the executives of the um, resident doctors. And hopefully before the weekend, we'll have some formal announcement from uh, the doctors that they are suspending the strike action they embarked on, which started since Monday. Do they have the authorities have the money and the resources to give the doctors what they want? Right now, uh, they don't. But again, the government is in a fix because with the um, coronavirus, um, I mean, the challenge that is currently affecting the whole world, and particularly in Nigeria, they have no choice because the doctors uh, form the fulcrum of handling these challenges in terms of the health uh, sector. So what the government has done today, based on some of the reports we're seeing coming out of that meeting, is that they've approved over 355 million rands for the doctors and other health workers. Because again, since June, the federal government has been unable to pay them all the hazards allowance, the inducement allowances, you know, and all of that. Because again, the health workers are in the front line. Unfortunately, they've not been taken care of the way they should. And this particular strike action has been able to bring out something uh, from um, the meeting, or from the strike rather. And it appears that the government is now willing to pay. They, they have to look for the money. And it appears they've agreed. Because again, at the meeting, to, at the meeting today was the central bank governor was the accountant general of the federation, was the minister of finance. So it tells you how serious, you know, uh, this strike uh, was going to affect the entire health system of Nigeria and the government is not leaving anything to chance. All right, so it's doctors that are on strike. Um, and sometimes what can often happen is that uh, one layer of the health system, as soon as it gets its way, it encourages uh, the others, the other health workers, nurses and support staff, has there been any hint that they too are disgruntled and may look to follow the same action? Absolutely. You are right on point there, Peter, because um, just last week, 
the Joint Health Workers Union in Nigeria, who go by the acronym JOHESU, also issued a warning strike to the federal government, telling them that, hey, look, um, we also have our own issues, and you're not addressing those issues. And um, we're giving you a, a warning that um, if you don't address those issues as soon as possible, we're also going to embark on strike. And if they do, it's going to affect the entire foundation of the health sector because we're talking about nurses, we're talking about pharmacists, we're talking about medical laboratory scientists, we're talking about those who are in charge of you know, equipment in the hospital. So it is going to be more serious than what we're expecting now because, again, you know, when the doctors went on strike, the federal government had actually threatened that um, the younger doctors who are just coming out of the universities will be replaced. I mean, they'll get them to replace these resident doctors. But in the case of these other health workers, it will be absolutely very difficult for the federal government to come out of it. Because, again, when they down tool, they will literally shut down the hospital. As a matter of fact, physically, you can't even get entrance into a hospital anytime they down tool. So uh, they issued their warning. And I'm sure that uh, maybe before the end of the weekend or towards next week, the, gov the government should be able to get, get their leaders together on a roundtable and also to look at their agitations, as it were. Nigeria's economy very affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, like other parts of the world. Are the doctors not taking this into consideration? I mean, there's a lot of people who are just grateful to have jobs not even worrying about uh, pay increases and some even taking pay cuts. That's not on the cards at all in Nigeria. Well, um, this is one of the arguments for those who have criticized the doctors for looking uh, or for taking the opportunity with the challenge with coronavirus to come up with their demands. But the argument is that this is not a 2020 um, issue they are looking at. This is not a 2019 issue that this uh, same challenge has been ongoing. I mean, it's been on for years, and government has a way of coming to meet one out of the ten agreements, or they meet number two, leave the rest three, four, five, six, seven, eight out. And um, this time around, they said they also are in the in the forefront of fighting coronavirus. That if you don't take care of us, how do we then take care of the people who are uh, uh, faced with all the challenges? So they say to us that that's talking about the doctors that they do well understand that yes the country is going through its own economic woes but they also are the receiving end of those economic woes because if they don't have and they are not properly taken care of they will not be able to take care of you know those uh, other nigerians who may likely be going through one or two health challenges that is samson omale a journalist in nigeria speaking to pete andoro the World Health Organization has made a plea to all United Nations member states to work together as countries embark on rebuilding their economies. This comes ahead of the virtual UN General Assembly later this month. This week, Statistics South Africa announced that the country's GDP for the second quarter dropped by 16% from the first quarter. This was mainly due to the country's strict COVID-19 lockdown. Sophie Mugwena compiled this report. The United Nations launched after the Second World War. The aim and the objective to ensure the maintenance of peace. But the world body now deals with many other challenges through its agencies. The COVID-19 pandemic may be described as the biggest problem for member countries right now. And the World Health Organization is working hard to combat the pandemic, while countries figure out how to rebuild their economies. 
If we look at the international sectors of the economies in, in, in low-income and high-income countries together, over the next 15 months, um, the losses could be as great as $15 trillion, and the only way, pardon me, $12 trillion, and the only way that we are going to uh, address that is by a collective action that ensures all countries get some of the products, especially the vaccines as they're rolled out, because that way we can reduce severe disease everywhere and get international mobility and trade moving again to get the health system safe around the world and recover those losses. So the big messages that the General Assembly and the Secretary General speaks to this all the time, and he spoke of it just again today, he was very, very clear that we need a collective solution, the exact same position as the Director general and also a message very much of hope yes, our countries are connected our people our families we live distributed across this planet uh, and in this situation we need to turn that connectedness back into our greatest strength but for this to happen the world must be united when solidarity lacks and when we're divided uh, that's a very good opportunity for the virus and that's why it's still uh, spreading. Uh, so that's what worries me, and that's what I ask the world to, to, to do. Of course, there are uh, good signs, but it's not, it's not enough. One is uh, the uh, ACT Accelerator Council meeting we had uh, this morning, uh, but still uh, the lack of solidarity remains to be uh, the major, major challenge. We now have to speed up the process of finding tools to combat the pandemic. I'm sure we will all agree that faced with a pandemic such as COVID-19, it is essential that humanity should have a sense that if and when a vaccine is developed, all countries, including my own continent, Africa, should benefit and not be left behind. The vaccine pillar holds the most promise for getting our economies and our citizens back to work. By pulling risk through this innovative model, we can ensure that vaccine distribution is fair and equitable. This will in turn support the resumption of economic activity, which benefits us all. The WHO believes the world will recover from this pandemic. We will get through this. So there are many people that are going through very, very difficult times right now. Um, and we're all in different situations and, and it's very challenging for all of us. But if you need help, please reach out. And there are people that, that can help. Sophie McGuain, SABC News. Johannesburg. The National Coronavirus Command Council has decided to enforce a nationwide lockdown. A global pandemic, COVID-19. Several countries have scaled up their responses and put in place strict controls, including South Africa. Channel Africa broadcasting from South Africa will continue to bring you news and current affairs during this period. 
whereby a 21-day lockdown is effective. We will keep you updated and informed during this period as we bring you news and current affairs from an African perspective. At 7.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A former South Africa's President Thabo Mbeki has had a long relationship with anti-apartheid lawyer and activist advocate George Bizzles. It was a young Beggy who had constant contact and also assisted the ANC leadership during the 1956 treason trial. The then ANC leader, Duma Nogwe, who was also a lawyer, would assign former President Beggy to take notes during some of the political trials. For more on the life and times of advocate George Bizzles, my colleague Peter Ndoro spoke to former President Thabo Mbeki. Condolences, first of all, because this is somebody that you knew for a long time. Yes, indeed. It's a, it's a sad loss. It's a sad loss. We, of course, knew that George was not well, had not been well for quite some time. But nevertheless, when you lose somebody as valuable as he, as he was, it, indeed, it's a, it, it is a loss uh, for, for all of us. So throughout the course of the day and much of yesterday, he's being described by many as a human rights lawyer, which he was. But I think we forget sometimes that he was an activist as well, an anti-apartheid activist. Well, quite right, yes. I mean, the, uh, I, I think the, the, the critical point about George Bezos, uh, and indeed I think some others, is that George uh, stood in the front line of a particular in particular area of our struggle, uh, which which was the legal area, uh, very very committed, very determined to ensure that our country gets liberated. Um, so he he, sure he was a human rights person, in in that particular context, very committed to the to the notion of liberation. I've said this thing before that, for instance. Uh, George came, came, visited us in Lusaka, I think it was around 1987. Uh, he came uh, as a messenger. And the message was that Kobi Kutsie, who had been in contact, uh, was talking to Nelson Mandela, was said, said that uh, they are discussing, the regime was discussing the possibility of the release of political prisoners. But what was worrying them was that the one that release might also serve as a signal to the masses of our people to rise up in an insurrection to overthrow the regime. And, and therefore, so long as uh, this fear on the part of the regime was not addressed, they would not release the prisoners. Uh, so uh, George came with this message, but not only as a messenger, but also as a strategist to engage the ANC leadership on this matter to say, well, this is what the regime is saying. How do we respond to that? And so he participated in this discussion, not as a lawyer, but as a strategist to say, what, is, what step do we take in order to secure the liberation of our people, starting with this step of the release of political prisoners? Uh, just to finish that particular story, we said, okay, uh, when you get back, George, just say to them, we are ready. Uh, to send in a couple of us, it was Mac Maharaj and myself, to come into the country, to talk to the regime, talk to the political prisoners, talk to our people, 
and, and handle this thing of the release of the political prisoners uh, in a particular way, agreed, the matter of what would then happen afterwards would, would, would then be dealt with later. But I'm saying George Bezos came with that message, but also as part of a strategist, a strategist to say, what, how, what do we do to respond to this? And therefore, I wouldn't, I would never be able to see George Bezos only as a lawyer. He's so a lawyer, very an excellent lawyer, an outstanding mm -hmm. lawyer, but also very, very committed uh, to the struggle for the liberation of our people. And at uh, a time when uh, being a white person in South Africa to join causes such as this um, would have come with great discomfort to him. I, I'm, I'm not sure that it would have come as a, a discomfort. Uh, I think that George, I've never ever had any sense that George had ever had ever had any notion other than I am part of the liberation struggle. Uh, I mean, in the sense that this would have come with harassment to his person from the regime. Oh, of course, naturally. Yeah, naturally, by by taking the positions he was was taking uh, in support of the struggle, he was defining himself as an opponent of the regime and of late, later as an enemy of the regime. Naturally, quite correct, Peter. Uh, but he, he was obviously said he has no choice but to take a position like this. His conscience would not allow him to take any, any, any different position. And he was always concerned, it seems, uh, with the most vulnerable, the most disenfranchised, and those that uh, desperately needed somebody uh, to give uh, a voice and their story to be told. Well, my, 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 uh, my sense always, Peter, of George Bezos over many years was of a very a humble person. Let, let, me use, let me use a particular word. In a sense, a simple person. George was not complicated. He was not, uh, didn't have highfalutin ideas about himself. In a sense, a man of the people. And therefore, once we took a, we took a position to say, we must fight to end oppression for the liberation of the people. I think in a sense, by definition, uh, it had to take a position which says the most marginalized, the most disadvantaged, the most oppressed, the most suffering, surely must be the person that I ally myself with uh, because that, that really is in his heart, in his mind, within his value system. Mm. That's former South Africa's President Tabumbeki speaking to Pete Andoro. It is 7.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. 
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa on the headlines. The number of coronavirus cases across the globe has surpassed 28 million since the start of the outbreak. Over 908,000 people have died worldwide from COVID-19-related illnesses. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the access to COVID-19 tools, the ACT accelerator, is the global solution the world is looking for. And Microsoft says hackers with ties to Russia, China and Iran are attempting to spy on people and groups involved with the U.S. 2020 presidential election. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Again, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. It's 7.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Around 80% of all child cancer cases globally occur in low and middle income countries, but less than a third of children are diagnosed within these countries. And of those that are treated, less than 20% survive. The month of September is globally dedicated to childhood cancer awareness, a time to acknowledge the thousands of children and their families who are dealing with a cancer diagnosis. For more on this, we are joined on the line by Taryn Seders from the Childhood Cancer Foundation in South Africa. Taryn, good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Now, Taryn, how prevalent are childhood cancers in the country? So in South Africa, if we want to focus more on our own demographics, you're looking at under the age of 16, about a 1,000 new cases every single year. That's under the age of 16. And it's only a 55% survival rate there. Internationally, you're looking at about 85 to 90%. So that's a very scary statistic if you're looking just at survival rate and just knowing the kid is going to survive after being diagnosed with childhood cancer. Now, which are some of the most common types of cancers in children? So the most common is leukemia, which is cancer of the blood cells. And then you're also looking at brain cancer and your lymphomas and your sarcomas. 
And and with regards to um, the signs and symptoms and the diagnosis of childhood cancer, you know, if you look at adults and uh, um, seeing the process that an adult uh, who, whether they have uh, breast cancer or cervical cancer, that process from diagnosis to um, the treatment and, uh, you know, the recovery, uh, remission, do children go through all those different stages? So the thing with childhood cancer, which is very scary, is there's nobody knows what actually causes it. So as much as there's been a huge amount of research into childhood cancer, there's no definite, like, this is what it has, and this is because of you've done this, or it's because of certain cells in your body or from family members or anything like that. So that is why CHOC really focuses on our Cilluan signs, which are the early warning signs for childhood cancer. Because we also believe that the earlier a child is diagnosed with cancer, the survival rate is much higher. So what we do recommend for people to do is if they notice any of these signs, and I'll go through them with you, that they immediately go see a doctor and try to get that early diagnosis as soon as possible. So things that you can always look out for is anything, any white spots in the eye, if you're going a new blindness, um, squinting in the eye, any abnormal lumps throughout the body, and um, whether it be your limbs or your head or your pelvis, lumps that have been there for a while as well. So not just like a bruise. So any unexplained things such as an, a long fever and um, loss of weight, fatigue, any bleeding that is unusual, also like aching bones and things like that. It's not normal for a child to have aching bones longer than a week or so, just purely because it's not growing pain. And then obviously your neurological signs, so any headaches that aren't, common with a child, longer than a week especially, um, enlarging head, any vomiting that is unusual, dizziness. So those are the signs that you really need to look out for, which is abnormal for a child to go through. Now briefly tell us about the Foundation's work in helping children um, suffering from cancer and their families and um, you know some of the challenges that uh, you are encountered. So definitely at CHOC, we believe that every person, especially children and teenagers that are suffering with cancer and any life-threatening blood disorders, should have access to quality specialized health services. So we obviously don't want anybody to suffer the financial hardship or anything that is the pain that goes with childhood cancer. No child should suffer with that. So our aim is to provide um, the support program throughout the family's journey that they go through and alleviate as much of that strain as possible. So some of the challenges that we do notice is a late diagnosis and anything missing treatment. So we do focus on transport funds, getting the children to and from the hospitals. And all of the myths and the stigmas, we try to get awareness out about childhood cancer. So just eliminate those myths and stigmas and realize that this is what it is and this is how we can help you overcome this journey that you're going through at the moment. Now, what usually happens during the month of September in observing childhood cancer awareness? So September is a very exciting month for us. It's Childhood Cancer Awareness Month, so it's internationally recognized. And it's just an opportunity for us to raise support and funding and awareness of childhood cancer, as well as the impact of those children and teenagers for their families. So it's just getting the, the word out there about CHOC and childhood cancer and just creating awareness of the foundation and trying to raise a bit of funds at the same time.
And any call to action from the foundation and during this, uh, you know, this difficult period, uh, the whole world is dealing with the uh, COVID it's, pandemic. It's and made you know, it difficult. Yeah. So during COVID, we're obviously not doing any um, large events or anything like that this month. So we're just focusing on turning the world gold with our merchandise, which can be found on our website, which is www.choc.org.za. Do you think, Taryn, enough is being done with regards to childhood cancers and, and the awareness of childhood cancers? I don't think enough will ever be done. And as long as there's children passing away from this terrible disease, it's not enough. But you can certainly try your best to do as much as possible. So we really do focus on getting our name out there and getting the early warning signs out there as far as possible the rural areas definitely so that we can just help those children and families that are going through this. Well, Taryn, thank you so much for joining us this morning and all the best with uh, um, your drive and uh, with the work that you do. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Taryn. That's Taryn Seegers from the Childhood Cancer Foundation in South Africa joining us on the line. It's 7.40 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The U.S. has imposed sanctions on a pro-Russian Ukrainian lawmaker linked to Republican efforts to dig up dirt on Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden and his son Hunter, accusing him of trying to interfere in the U.S. election. This report by Reuters. The U.S. Treasury Department on Thursday imposed sanctions on four Russia-linked individuals for trying to interfere in the U.S. electoral process, accusing Moscow of using a range of methods and actors in an effort that included the targeting of presidential candidates. Among the four individuals is Andrei Durkach, a pro-Russian Ukrainian lawmaker who the Treasury accused of using, quote, manipulation and deceit in an attempt to influence U.S. elections. In December, Durkach met with President Donald Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, in Ukraine as the former New York City mayor pushed for an investigation into Trump's Democratic challenger, Joe Biden, and a Ukrainian energy company where Biden's son, Hunter, was a board member. The sanctions announced on Thursday also targeted three Russian nationals that the Treasury said are employees of Russia's Internet Research Agency, which was indicted by former U.S. Special Counsel Robert Mueller as part of his probe into alleged Russian interference in the 2016 election. Reuters reported on Thursday that Microsoft had alerted one of Biden's main election campaign advisory firms that it had been targeted by suspected Russian state-backed hackers, according to three people briefed on the matter. The sanctions also come a day after a former official at the Department of Homeland Security filed a whistleblower complaint alleging he was pressured by Trump appointees, including acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf, to stop providing assessments of Russian election interference because it could, quote, make the president look bad. 
Representatives of the White House and the Department of Homeland Security have denied the allegations. And that report by Reuters. It's 7.42 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our South Africa's Home Affairs Minister, Dr. Aaron Mutsualedi, is to table in Parliament amendments to the electoral laws that could pave the way for the introduction of electronic voting over and above the traditional method of polling. Dr. Mutsualedi has disclosed this in a notice on the Government Gazette. The IEC told Parliament in July that it was also considering piloting e-voting. However, such a pilot project would require additional funding from the National Treasury. Celine Merrington has more. The country is gearing for local government elections next year. It is unclear what the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic will be on the upcoming polls. The Minister of Home Affairs, Dr. Aaron Mutsuledi, has mentioned the idea of introducing e-voting in addition to the paper-based voting. In a notice in the Government Gazette, Mutsualedi proposes the discontinuation of the requirement by political parties to submit paper documents. They can submit them electronically if the proposed amendments to the electoral laws are passed. But some political parties have expressed concern. IFP Chief Wupnarin Singh says this is unlikely to be implemented soon. Our preliminary response to electronic voting would be that it would not be able to be implemented in the next elections. There would be challenges of communication infrastructure, connectivity, voter education, larger number of candidates contesting, uh, and these would be constraints. We'd also have to look at international examples of African country experiences, which will guide us into knowing whether or not uh, electronic voting can be successful in our situation. MPs from the DA, Angel Kanyile, and Voter Vessels from the Freedom Front Plus share Singh's concerns. We are in support of the electronic voting system. However, we will have some concern about the people in the rural areas because we believe that there should be inclusivity and uh, IEC and the party agents will have to get training on how the system works so that they can be able as well to go to the community members and train them about the system and to also give them assurance that there won't be any any um, vote rigging. FF Plus is of opinion that an electronic voting system will solve a lot of the problems that we are faced with currently, especially with regards to the transportation of ballot papers and the counting process. But we are also of opinion that it is overambitious to think that an electronic system can be implemented at this stage, taking into account the realities faced by South Africa, where in a lot of areas and a lot of polling stations do not have electricity supply and also no internet network coverage. Dr. Nsikalelo Breakfast from Stellenbosch University had this to say about the proposals. We've had challenges in the past, I think in the recent elections. Um, there were ballot papers that went missing in some polling stations. On the other hand, in a country like ours, which has class uh, contradictions, inequality, poverty, uh, high levels of uh, uh, illiteracy, it might be a challenge.
That report by Celine Merrington. It's 7.46 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update. The National Coronavirus Command Council has decided to enforce a nationwide lockdown. A global pandemic, COVID-19. Several countries have scaled up their responses and put in place strict controls, including South Africa. Good morning. Kenya could be, in the coming days, hit by a major diesel shortage with the stocks in the country only enough to cover the next two to three days. Although the Petroleum Ministry admitted that there was a risk of diesel pumps running dry, it however assured consumers that the government was working with the industry players to resolve the crisis and supply would not be affected. According to the Daily Petroleum Stock Report by the Energy and Petroleum Regulatory Authority, as of Wednesday, there were 39.567 cubic meters of diesel stored in different depots across the country. Former South Africa's Power Utility Board Chair Ben Ngubane is expected to give evidence at the Commission of Inquiry into state capture this morning. On Thursday, former board member Vanette Klein, in her evidence, gave reasons that justified why the board paid thousands of U.S. dollars to sack Eskom executives who were suspended in 2015. Earlier this week, a former Eskom board chair, Zola Tsozi, concluded his evidence and implicated Ngubani and Klein for wrongdoing at the power utility. Tsozi claimed board members turned against him. Klein has denied allegations leveled against her, but told the commission that they could have handled some of the decisions taken by board members better. ESCOM mutually parted ways with three ESCOM executives. Klein says ESCOM received a second downgrade after the firing of the executives. Chairperson, once again, I'm speaking for myself. A company with a turnover of $375 million per annum, with a cost to run of $30 million per day. I don't know how we conclude that this... I'm sorry, um, Chairperson, I've got to disagree that 18 million, I'm not taking anything away from the point you raised earlier. If they wanted to resign, let them resign. I'm not trivializing the point. So 18 million for a company with a 375 million turnover per annum, those are not number, those are not even comparative. Consumer goods company Unilever says it will withdraw all Tresemme SA products from all retail stores for a period of 10 days as a demonstration of its remorse for the offensive and racist advert. The company will also donate a minimum of 10,000 sanitary towels and sanitizers to informal settlements identified by the opposition EFF. Nomalizo Mandela reports. 
According to a joint statement by EFF and Unilever, both parties could not find each other on the publishing of the names of the people responsible for the racist images, with Unilever claiming that the director involved in the campaign has since left the company and the country. The company made a commitment that following its internal investigations, it will take EFF and the country into confidence. Unilever expressed its remorse once again to all South Africans, black women in particular. Both parties agreed that the matter is now put to rest. Meanwhile, EFF leadership is currently meeting with the CLICS delegation. Despite the government of Namibia spending billions over the past four years through the national budget, no real economic growth has been realized and the country's overall output continues to slide. With another negative growth looming, the expected fall in the value of goods and services the country produced in 2020 will take Namibia seven years back. Judging by the gross domestic product per capita, the national cake is also shrinking compared to the growing population. The U.S. Senate has defeated a Republican bill that would have provided around $300 billion in new coronavirus aid. The bill was voted against after Democrats seeking far more funding prevented it from advancing. The U.S. remains as a country with the most cases, having recorded over 6.3 million infections and 191,000 COVID-19-related deaths. Colette Luck is a Reuters reporter. By a vote of 52 to 47, the Senate failed to get the 60 votes needed to advance the partisan bill, leaving the future of any new coronavirus aid in doubt. Senator Rand Paul was the lone Republican to vote no. Democrats objected to what wasn't in the bill, namely aid to state and local governments and a second round of $1,200 stimulus checks. The Republican bill would have renewed a federal unemployment benefit, but at a lower level than Democrats wanted. And it would set new protections for businesses against liability lawsuits during the pandemic, something Democrats have labeled as a poison pill. The U.S. dollar is trading at 381.24 Nigerian Naira, 11.37 Botswana Pula, 107.46 Kenyan Shilling and 19.67 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies will start in Brazil, 1 U.S. dollar there costs 5 rubles 30 Russia, 75 rubles 20 India, 73 rupees 33 in China, a dollar is changing hands at 61.83 and in South Africa it will cost you 16 rand 70. The U.S. dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and 84 cents to euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,945 and platinum at $919 per ounce. Brand crude oil, $40.09 a barrel. Africa, your favorite channel. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. 
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Ronald Peary, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at channelafrica1. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Hugh Masekela with a track titled Tumamina, featuring Abigail Kubega, Vusi Matlasela, Tandiso Mazwai, Zolani Mahola, Jay Something and Selema Wright. The People's Version will be released across all digital platforms today, which is a Friday, September the 11th in Heritage Month. Tumamina is a call to the people of South Africa to stand up collectively for change. In the song Tumamina, Hugh Masigela pens the lyrics, I want to be there when the people start to turn it around, which rings true to the very first words in South Africa's constitution. We the people. Goodbye and stay safe.
It's a crazy world, it's a crazy world for the baby boys and the baby girls. Boy, please don't hurt my sister. Boy, please don't hurt that woman. Boy, please look after your mama. What is all the fighting for? Ning to me. This is what we're crying for. Ning to me. Tell the people, rise, don't fall. Ning to me. What kind of world is it that we live in? Children getting abused, they so innocent. Marching for our rights, they're not listening. Fist up in the air, that's what I'm giving them. People with no food, no pennies. All I'm asking you to do is just send me. All I'm asking you to do is just send me. Oh.